Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of Say What Needs Saying. I'm Zach. I'm Brent. And thank you guys for joining us. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our other episodes. The first non-live sidebar conversation that we've had is now posted onto Spotify and other platforms. We'll be doing those from time to time just to talk about some other issues and raise some different viewpoints. And so talk about things that either me and Brandon disagree on or just that we can bring different perspectives on. And in the future, I think we'd like to do them with other people too. And so if any of you have any particular issues that you have particularly strong feelings about or what you perceive to be controversial perspectives or views on, feel free to send us a message and let us know if you want to do an anonymous sidebar and we can get your perspective out there. Today, we're going to be talking about the recent Supreme Court decisions and how they relate to freedom of religion. So there are three specific cases that I think we're going to go into, at least three, three main ones that I have, unless other ones come up. Those are the Little Sisters of the Poor Saints Peter and Paul Home versus Pennsylvania, the Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Beru, and Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. And so all of these kind of tie into religion in one way or another, and were perceived as having the potential to infringe on religious freedoms and religious rights. I figured we would just kind of give a little bit of background on what the case is. I would read through a little bit of what the decisions were and what the case was all about. Brandon will talk a little bit about the real world application and what, you know, how that could be linked to day-to-day life. And then we'll kind of just open it up to conversation. The first one we're going to start with is Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Beru. And so in this case, there were two teachers that were fired from different schools, uh, religious schools. One claimed that she was being replaced with a younger teacher, and one claimed that she was terminated because she had requested leave for breast cancer treatment. Those particular reasons weren't necessarily investigated. The the claims, though, were that the institutions could claim something called ministerial exception to Title VII, and so that they were no longer held accountable to those anti-discrimination laws, and so that they were, quote-unquote, allowed to fire them. A previous decision that had established kind of the criteria underlying ministerial exception, they found four points that applied to the minister in that situation that allowed churches to discriminate in their hiring and firing processes. And so the four criteria in those cases were that one, the person was considered a minister or had minister in their title. Two, they had undergone significant religious training in order to perform their job. Three, she had, quote unquote, held herself out as a minister. And so she was claiming it on her taxes. um, So she was identifying as a minister. And then four, she performed significant religious functions as part of her job. So obviously those are all a little bit vague, but those are the things that were then used as precedent for whether or not a religious institution was allowed to have more leeway in their hiring and firing processes, right? If they were exempt from these anti-discrimination laws. So the case with these teachers, 
they didn't meet most of those criteria. And so that was why the lower courts had not allowed ministerial exception. They had basically said they weren't allowed to fire these teachers because they didn't meet all of the requirements. And when it went to the Supreme Court, they decided that one criteria was enough, that they didn't need to hit all four. And so the one that they hit in both cases were that both of those teachers taught religion and both of them worshiped and prayed with the students, even though they weren't called ministers, called themselves ministers, and didn't really undergo too much religious training. But they did perform significant religious functions. So that's kind of an overview of the first case. And obviously the idea is whether or not it's infringing on religious freedoms in these cases where they may not be considered a minister, but it is still a person that to some capacity is teaching religion or instilling religious beliefs. Um, should these institutions still be allowed to discriminate in these cases or should they have to meet all four criteria? I would say some of the feedback that I've been noticing when it comes to this particular case was even the idea of, uh, I guess this was even the headline, you know, is it necessary to mix church and state? Mm -hmm. And this is literally an example of how we're including the state itself, the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, to something religious-based. What will be its bearings behind it and why is it even being uh, involved as a whole? And the question is, like, how much of how much of that are you able to discern? If you're able to, like, I guess, accept that this, because if you accept this form of state intervention, I forgot what bill President uh, Trump passed. I think this was John something or where religious groups, whether it be churches or mosques or what have you, they're allowed to donate money to you know to elections and campaigns, and that kind of slid under the radar. It developed some some feedback. But as a whole, what do you guys think when it comes to the idea of involving a situation like this? Was it unjust? Is it fair? And because you're living under the law of the land that you are abide by the land? And if that's the case, there's things that should be accounted for like that, like taxes. You know, people say, you know, over a billion dollars of the taxes that can be used as revenue that can go to metropolitan level developments that need to, ha need to uh, occur if tax were to be in place. So what do you guys think about that? Right. And so you're all unmuted now. If you want to turn your audio on and, and talk, um, you're also welcome to use the Zoom group chat function. If you don't feel like speaking up, we'll encourage the discussion, but feel free to do whatever you're comfortable with. And if people are still kind of getting their bearings, then we can always describe the next case and kind of move on from there. And if we run through all three cases, then, then we'll, just, we'll just chat about them. So the other question is, you know, what do you think about ministerial exception? That's a big part when it comes to church and state. That's literally saying that religious institutions have exceptions from the state's law and the state's policy. I think separation of church and state is impossible when freedom of religion is built into our constitution, right? I think that on some level, sure, you want to make sure that it doesn't overly control government. But it's an, I think when people make the argument that, well, oh, separation of church and state, we need, to, we need to separate the two, I think it's impossible to do it on a global scale because of that. What do you think, Brandon? Do you have anything you wanted to say on this one, or do you want to move on to the next one, and then we'll just roll through them? I just think there's so many avenues of which you can go down this hole, like, if we're going to allow the freedoms that the minister, quote unquote ministers have, we can explore uh, how that's being played out in, in society now and how different cases that have went to the Supreme Court or even local courts, some might say that abuse of power was noted in those cases. And then that also ties into some people saying that allegations upon the Catholic Church are absolved of these consequences due to this ministerial type crown, so to speak. 
All right, so I just got a, a text uh, or a message on Zoom. Uh, let me see. It's asking if minister has a legal definition. So as far as I know, no. So my, to my knowledge, minister isn't given a definition. I could be wrong. If anyone does know, feel free to speak up. I guess my gut would tell me that this could be applied in other cases as long as it was the equivalent. I'll do a quick search and see if there's any precedent to it. Because we see it used in quotations in regards to the explanation of the trials. All right. So it looks like at least so far, there hasn't been a case, at least that I'm seeing, that was a different religion outside of Christianity. And so I'm assuming that right now it's up in the air it would come down to the next case. It would come down to the next case to hit the Supreme Court, whether it was a Buddhist temple or a, a mosque or a some other either church or religious organization or institution. I, so I guess for conversation's sake, we'll assume that it's applied to other religions as well for the equivalent of ministers. So any religious leaders or any religious teachers or things of that nature. Right. So in that case, I think it would it would depend on who's on the bench because there are certain times where a case will come up and precedents will be used, but the justice will rule against it because they don't agree with the original precedent. And then there are other cases where I think it was Roberts uh, lately, he voted for a decision because of precedents, even though he was openly acknowledging that he disagreed with the precedent. Well, that quick question for you: What would you, what exactly would you say would be the ramifications of a case like this in its infancy? That you know that the next case wouldn't be able to be prepared for. Like, what type of because this was introduced? What does you know what Pandora's box comes behind this? I think every future case then is subject to this precedent, right? So if we want to jump to the the newest one, right, the the Bostock versus Clayton County one is the the one that expanded Title Seven. This case was the one where it expanded Title Seven to sexual orientation and gender identity. They made no ruling on religious cases, and so I think that in those cases, that will be an instance where any religious institution will be able to say that it goes against their religious teachings, it goes against their the Bible or whatever, and so we'll still be able to get around that. So I think any case like that, it's going to come back up and it's going to come back up throughout history as these things get hammered out, because it's clear now that there is precedence for pretty much any not any discrimination, but that churches can get away with a lot of things if it goes against their morals or their religion based sure. on this ministerial exception clause. So I think that stuff like this new case will have precedent for a lot of future cases. Well, we've, we've already been seeing, I guess, in reference to the Bostock versus Clayton County case, we've been seeing the involvement of church and state. And I guess in regards to uh, the expansion of Title Seven, would mm -hmm. you say that that's kind of like almost like a misstep that they couldn't make any type of amendments or not amendments, but any type of like, I guess, any type of permanent change in regards to the Little Sisters compared to both that. Oh, so you're, are you saying like set a new law instead of expanding upon Title Seven? Or right. Gotcha. I think it would lead to less controversy, right? Because a lot of the controversy came uh, after the textualist argument was used for the case expanding it to include gender identity and sexual orientation. And so the textualist argument in making decisions on court cases is you're going by the text of the law, period, right? And so this led to a lot of controversy because the argument that was used, the argument that was used for expanding Title VII was that by discriminating against someone that was 
homosexual, someone that was gay, yes, you were discriminating by sexual orientation, but you were discriminating in a sense by the fact that they were attracted to a person of a certain sex. And so let's say you fire someone for being a gay man. You are, in a sense, firing that person for being sexually attracted to men, whereas you wouldn't fire a woman for being sexually attracted to a man. And that so, is, so it's, it's, it's tricky, but it's logical, right? It makes sense, but you have, to, you have to think about it to get there. And the same thing then with gender identity. If you are firing a transgender, well, either male or female, right? You are discriminating against them for presenting as or identifying as a certain gender. So if you were to fire them for that, that's something that you wouldn't fire a cisgender person for, right? Because they would be identifying with the same gender or presenting as the same gender. Right. And so it's, it's the same argument. It's that what you're doing, yes, it discriminates against them specifically for their sexual orientation or their gender identity, but that in doing so, you're inadvertently discriminating against them based on sex as well. Right. Because Title VII already covers against that. And so in that sense, you are not necessarily expanding it in the sense of adding more things that you can, you are now protected. You're just expanding upon the definition of sex in Title VII, mm -hmm. because Title VII already protects against discrimination of, uh, against sex. We had a question in the chat that asked if we were going to talk about the case in Nevada that just recently happened. And so this case, for those of you who didn't see, basically the, the Supreme Court decided against a Nevada church that was fighting to overturn the attendance limit. And so a, and a, a limit was being placed on church attendance through policy, limiting it to 50 people that could attend church during the, the coronavirus pandemic. And so the, the church argued that this violated their freedom of religion, that it didn't allow them to freely practice express their, or, yeah, practice their, practice their faith. Um, so I guess I'll just turn that over to you guys first and you, Brandon, if you guys have any thoughts on this one. That's kind of the gist of it. A uh, lower court had ruled against the church as well. So this is one that has gone against them in both cases, right? Where a lot of these cases, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of religion more recently. So, so yeah, I guess that one's, you know, a little more, a little more heated of a topic, right? That one is more recent and it's pertaining directly to the coronavirus. So, so what do you guys think? Do you guys think this is a, well, I guess outside of, is it a smart move or is it the right thing to do? Because there's an argument to be made there, but do you think that it infringes on freedom of religion? Do you think that this is something that needs to be, I don't know, what, what do you guys think about this? Or Brandon, what do you, what do you think? I was going to let the, the open up the floor that, you know, discussion and feel the first. Mm -hmm. Sure. And so I guess I'll also point out that the the decision was 5-4. So this one wasn't one that... Was unanimous. Uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't unanimous and it was more or less party lines, but not necessarily. Uh, we got one comment and said, I guess this is a public health issue. Not sure who will enforce it if it is not the state. Individual responsibility may not work for, pub for a public health issue but it is a problem that Nevada casinos are open while churches are closed. That's a good point. And I'm guessing, you know, it's because probably because the, the casinos can, they're, they're selling food, right? So I, I don't know exactly how they get around it, but I'm guessing it has something to do with that. 
But yeah, it brings up a good point. In determining what's essential, what isn't essential, and what can open when, I had a conversation with someone very early on in the in the pandemic that I was saying how it was it was interesting and a little I don't know subjectively right or wrong um, but that you couldn't buy this was in Michigan that you couldn't buy fertilizer and seeds and all that those things but you could buy recreational marijuana <laughs> right and so it was one of those conversations I was having with someone about the definition of essential and how you come to those decisions on a law level on a legal level. We also, have, we also had a comment coming in the chat. It says, I don't believe religious activities should have any different restrictions or limitations than anything else, better or worse. Okay. So, yeah, so that one's a pretty, I mean, so I'll, I'll admit, I, I kind of agree, right? I think that this is something that, you know, religious institutions, it is a constitutionally protected right. And I think that if you were to, if it was closed or open, then it would be more an issue of public health. But when you make the argument that it's safe enough to open, then now making the argument that, well, it's safe enough to open, but you have to limit how many people you have specifically in churches. I think that opens the door for a lot of different, a lot of different decisions that could be made. Uh, we had a comment that was sent to me. It says, I think if SCOTUS ruled that church can happen outside, socially distanced with masks on, then a lot of people would have been happy. Um, so yeah, so I think that's something that they could have done to kind of qualify their their ruling. In this case, it's just a blanket statement of you are only allowed to have 50 people. Now, I will say that some people would be happy. I also think there, there would be a lot of people that would not be happy. And I think one of the main reasons we'll be happy is that you have the government telling them how to perform their religious practices. And I think you would run into the issue too. I, I think that not necessarily that it would lead to this, but I think one issue that could come from that is that look at things like the drive up church services that were happening early on that were happening and they were following social distancing protocols and, and guidelines, but people were still getting fines for attending church in their car and, and doing it that way. And so I think you may you may run into cases like that. You may not, um, especially after those cases happened. But it would, could be something that that comes up. We also see that uh, from the from the chat. It says it sounds like people are frustrated that churches are the only places limiting the number of people inside. But that isn't actually true. Restaurants, hair salons, etc., are all the same way, and even smaller grocery stores monitor traffic and have queues outside. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on what, are there any, are there any actually, actual restrictions on casinos right now? Cause that, so that was what came up in the dissent, right? That was what Alito brought up in the dissent. Yeah, it was Alito. He said that, quote, the constitution guarantees the free exercise of religion. It says nothing about the freedom to play craps or blackjack, to feed tokens into a slot machine or to engage in any other game of chance. And so I think, I don't know if the argument is that it's only religious institutions or churches. I think it's the argument was specific about casinos. And I will admit, I'm not positive about what the current restrictions are on casinos. Well, something that I, I and I, I too, am not uh, privy to that information, but I, I've been trying to find more behind these cases. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that it's as... Um, uh, uh, one of the comments says, says the casinos were allowed to reopen with restrictions. Got it. I noted that 
a lot of the institutions that don't pay taxes or that are tax exempt have the least amount of, I guess, judiciary control in regards to people and like reintegrating. Mm -hmm. So like different public institutions that accept the most amount of government money, whether it be for education or veteran status, <laughs> their numbers are not being tailored. Nonprofit organizations have not stopped none of their uh, practices and mm. churches as well. They don't pay taxes. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's like because because we don't get money from you. Right. You have less say over what we're doing. Right, right. We're going to put hurdles over what you're trying to accomplish. I thought I wasn't sure if that was a stretch or something that you could see being possible. You know what I mean? Like I was trying mm -hmm. to attach new lines. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes sense. I think the argument is mostly the constitutional right, right? I think that that's where most people are getting hung up is I think, well, so now knowing about casinos restrictions, I think the argument would be that churches should not be held to those same restrictions. Not necessarily that churches shouldn't be the only ones to be have restrictions put in place, but I think it would more so be that, you know, churches are not to be held to that same standard because they're constitutionally protected. Whether or not that's true, I mean, it's subjective. Every constitutional right has had limits put in place depending on the situation. And so whether or not that is the case, you know, that's for us to discuss. But I think that would be the main argument is that whether or not these other places should have restrictions put in place is aside from the fact that religious institutions should not. Because it's not only happening uh, with this case, it's happening all over the country. Right. And constitutional rights has been a really heated topic during the whole pandemic. We've touched on a lot of them. Right? We've touched on the, the right to assemble and, and protest, first with the anti-lockdown protests, and now with the protests that are going on in various cities across the across the country for Black Lives Matter and for other, you know, kinds of... Like the anti-mask part. Yeah. And so we covered that. You know, people have been angry about freedom of speech because of the idea of cancel culture going on and how it's kind of getting worse now. And now they're angry about freedom of religion as well. Brings up the larger question of whether or not constitutional rights can or should be restricted in certain times. And that's the only time that's really been tested is during war. During war, rights can sometimes be infringed to, you know, in, in certain cases. But other than that, it really has never been tested. I think that's why people are pushing back on religion, because like we said, when it comes to precedent, that sets a lot. Uh, well, it sets precedence for a lot of future cases. And so things like this, and I think that's typically the argument, or at least I could, I'll speak from the, the more conservative perspective, is that's typically the argument is it's not about right now, it's about the precedent. And so, for example, I don't think someone should be arrested for having an, a Nazi flag. Now, does that mean I agree with Nazis? Absolutely not. Nazis screwed over so many Poles. They destroyed my family's country. They killed so many people and they were awful, right? They were evil. But it sets a precedent that the government gets to decide what kind of speech is hateful or what defines hate speech. And so, even if we can all rationally agree that someone with a Nazi flag is being hateful, the question comes to, well, who is making that decision later on? And will they use the Nazi flag as precedent for allowing the censorship of something else? And so I think cases like this are a good example of that, where some people may be saying, well, it's okay to restrict it right now because of the pandemic. And again, I don't want to make it sound like this is my personal view, because I'm not really sure, right? I'm, I'm still a scientist. And so the, the public health side of it 
is a little stronger for me than issues of freedom of speech and, and things like that. But it comes down to that precedent. One thing that I definitely would say is a lot more looming is these constitutional rights, these like additional amendments, and then these, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think the constitution uh, is starting to show its age and that with such modern times and the level of modernity that we've entered in just in these past 300 years, mm-hmm. it's really, you know, it was written with a feather, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, sure. Uh, we, we're, we're dealing with the levels of complexity that these past 10 years wouldn't be rivaled sociologically, you know what I mean? So what about um, this case that we're talking about right now, right? Because, you know, you could say that, what about Spanish flu, right? Or what about, you know, other, it's not like pandemics were a completely unprecedented thing now. Something like coronavirus, yes, is unprecedented. But do you think that this is something that justifies the infringement on well, whether or not you consider it an infringement, but the infringement on freedom of religion, being well, able to have more than 50 people. Well, the whole point about this, and it was addressed earlier by someone in the chat, the whole point of this, or whether it be someone that you texted, mm-hmm. is that it's all in regards to public health and regards to public right. safety. During the Spanish flu, during these other uh, level of pandemics, the concept of, you know, we are as one and the level of communication we're able to facilitate within one day, mm-hmm. you know, we can get you know, 320 million people to put on a mask in a, in, in a week. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, like that level of communication wasn't present before. So then the question is, are they doing it out of the health and fairness of the pandemic? Because then, then we have to look at numbers to see, right. you know what I mean? If, the, if we're comparing casinos to churches and it's about public health, if casinos are more sickly, or if the churches are more, more sickly, you need to step in as the governmental force to protect the rights of people's health, which is above the, you know what I mean, the Bill of Rights. That's, a, that's mm-hmm. more of a human rights thing. So I right. guess it's more of a human rights. Well, and I think the other, so the other reason I'm torn on things like this is I, I, I lean libertarian, right? I, so I'm, I, I mostly agree with conservative perspectives, but I lean libertarian on a lot of issues. And my belief is that your rights should not be infringed unless they begin to infringe on the rights of others. And rights have a hierarchy, in my opinion. The right to life outweighs the freedom of religion. And so everyone has their own hierarchy. And so that's why it becomes subjective. But in going to a church with no mask on and singing loudly, you are now potentially endangering multiple people and infringing on the right to life of numerous people. And so now infringing on your freedom of religion may protect numerous people's right to life. And so it's it's very subjective. It's a case by case in my own beliefs and what stances I take on things. But in my opinion, this is one case where I think that if the argument was made, I, I don't know, it, it's tricky because the, the case is specific to churches. And I think if the argument was made that, like someone had said in the chat, that we are not infringing on your freedom to practice, just the the way in which you can do it under these specific circumstances, you know, outlining that these restrictions will be repealed when X conditions are met. I think people would be much more amenable to that than more or less a blanket statement of you can't have more than 50 people. Because in that case, you would say this is only because of the pandemic. And right there, you'd be setting the precedent. And it's tricky, right? But it's, I don't know, it's tricky and everyone has their own hierarchy. Or at least where will they place it? Very interesting question. Yeah. 
very, very interesting question was posted in the chat. This is off topic, which is extremely invited. You know what I mean? Take this off topic if necessary. But does this hierarchy of rights to life and freedom of speech also apply to guns? Uh, Well, I'll give my perspective real quick, just because I brought up the hierarchy, and then I'll open it up. For me, I think there's a difference between purchasing and owning a gun and then using a gun. So purchasing and owning a gun doesn't endanger anyone. Using a gun does. And so setting limitations on where you are allowed to use a gun, how you're allowed to use a gun, right? Murder isn't legal for that exact reason. It's for the same thing as church, right? We wouldn't be restricting your ability to practice just how you go about practicing. But you can't Um, do that, though. Exactly. And so it's, eh, I don't know. But, but as far as guns, that's why I don't think there's a, I don't think there's as much of an intersection there because there's the difference between purchasing and owning and, and using it. But, but I could see how that argument could be used. Right. Cause guns are known to protect life. And the idea, if life supersedes the bill of rights and the rights of a gun supersedes all rights, which in the correct format could beat any argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think the, the other issue there is that one is an implicit right. in the So we don't have a constitutional right to life, right? That's talked about in the Declaration of Independence, whereas the guns versus life is the same argument. So That's a good one. I, I did like that. That's, I might have to po- you might post that. That's, I like that question. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Um, I don't know. <laughs> what, do you, what do you guys all think as far as guns go? and and the right to life it goes off topic a little bit but yeah okay so the next comment after the auto off topic and we're gonna get right back to an asymptomatic unmasked person in public seems comparable to me in terms of potential risk to the presence of a loaded gun in someone's home i wouldn't say so because if i'm outside without a mask asymptomatic that's not the same as i can't like if i'm outside i can't uncover my yeah, sorry, God. Sickness. Yeah. No, no, I'm just saying I can't, like, if it's in my home, I have to go home to retrieve the weapon mm-hmm. and then to use it rather than I am the weapon itself. Right. Plus, there's a, also a difference between carrying and brandishing. I think in the case of being unmasked, you could now, I don't necessarily, as I say this, I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but I think that you could make the argument that if you're equating it to infringing on someone's right to life, if you're equating it to a loaded gun, you would essentially be always brandishing that gun, right? You would always be pointing that unless you were looking down constantly or something, you would always be brandishing it. Whereas a gun, if you were carrying it, even if it was loading, you wouldn't have it there. And right, yeah, so just existing versus coughing, but something other than coughing can cause it, right? So it would be just existing versus coughing or breathing or talking or things like that. Now, again, I, I agree. I think that this is something that that hierarchy, it, it really depends on the situation. Church, you, are, you bring in other elements like singing loudly that projects the, has the potential to project the virus farther distances, right, and other risks. But yeah, I think it, it's a good argument. And we also actually missed one other comment that I want to get up to before we lose it. It says, doesn't it seem a little backwards that these people in religious groups are more concerned with their right to assemble and less concerned with the safety of life, health? <laughs> what would Jesus do? Smiley face. So yeah, that's, it's a good point. I think it would depend on their own personal perception of the virus. Because I've met a lot of people that, or talked to a lot of people rather, that truly don't believe that they're putting other people at risk or too much risk by being around them without a mask. 
And so if that is truly their perception, then their perception would be that it's not a hierarchy of my right to practice religion and their right to life. It's a hierarchy of my right to life over my right to practice. And I'm willing to sacrifice my right to life, if that makes sense. But if they acknowledge that you're risking other people's health, that's where the hierarchy then can come more into play. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good point, right? And it's a very, that comes up in a lot of religious arguments, comes up in a lot of cases that have religious rationale. I've heard that with abortion and, and women's rights and being tolerant of, of what women want to do with their body and how, how dare religious institutions tell me that, you know, when they're supposed to be forgiving and tolerant. Heard that with discrimination in cases like um, in homosexuality and, and transgenderism now with, with the more recent case. But yeah, I think it's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting topic or an interesting take. Um, any of the comments that come up if any of you have any thoughts or, or comments on them, feel free to speak them at any point. Right. And I also felt as if that, um, that they're more concerned with the right to assemble. They, people have to fight for that right. They have the right to be defensive over that. You know, people, many people say that citizens only have so many rights. But even within the you know, most free nation in the world, they have the right to make that complaint. And then they also have the right to ignore what they wish to ignore. I guess we don't, because we don't hold other institutions to a moral code, then these these instances or scenarios won't be at least be brought to the table. Because no one's going to ask what's the moral compass on a casino. You know what I mean? But they're asking like the moral compass on religious institutions, which now then can take away from their rights. Well, but someone did just bring it up for guns, right? And so that could be applied to gun salesmen and, and you know, businesses that sell that kind of things. So not not currently, it's not being, but someone made that same argument when it comes to the hierarchy, right? Owning a gun could infringe on someone's right to life in, in some people's minds. And so I think the, again, it goes back to that precedent idea is that if we allow the enactment of policy based on this hierarchy, it then brings up into question who is deciding that hierarchy and then who decides whether or not something else takes precedence. Who does someone else who comes in? So let's say, you know, and I'm not saying this would happen, but let's say this case goes through like it has. And even if it gets challenged, you know, it gets shot back down. And so now this idea of a precedent has been set with setting a hierarchy of rights, which granted comes up in other cases too, but now dealing with constitutional rights. Biden may have a better uh, ability to ban assault rifles than he would have previously. That was something he had talked about with Beto is that he wanted to ban assault rifles at one point, right? or rather that Beto did and he wanted to put him in charge of guns. And so that is another instance of infringement on a constitutional right where you may now be able to make the argument of we're using a hierarchy of rights to restrict the freedom to bear the freedom to bear arms in order to protect the right of life. Again, I wouldn't agree with it. I would disagree with that take, but legally speaking, it's already been illustrated that precedents can be paper thin and then be twisted and made into something that was completely unforeseen. And so I think even though it may not apply to other institutions like casinos, I think it could apply in the future to other constitutional rights. One, one other comment that we didn't get to touch on, but I would like to get your perspective when you, when you, at least when you hear it. It says, we accept that the risk from, being, from existing indicates that we should wear a mask. 
correct me if I'm wrong, whoever made, made the comment, but I guess it's, it's an argument against masks, right? It's an argument saying that just existing is enough to make me wear a mask. So that in and of itself is a big precedent. You're, you're saying that even if I'm not coughing, even if I'm not talking, even if I'm not singing, so that equates to the risk of having a gun, meanings, means someone will be shot. Yeah, so, right, so that, it's, it's, the, it's taking that argument to its logical extreme with either masks or guns. And I, that's why I think it falls through, right? I think that's why I, I'm torn on it. I think that I understand it from a scientific perspective and I understand it from the idea that it, it makes sense. But I think that is why when you take it to the logical extreme, I disagree with it in that sense. And <laughs> this person doesn't. Uh, this person, oh, now we're getting some, some conversation. Um, so quickly reading, well, you go ahead, and go ahead and read through them, Brandon, since I was just talking. It says, or that the risk is high enough that by the same token, guns should be banned for me. That doesn't count, quote unquote, fall through. It makes perfect sense. It says you can you can own a gun responsibly. Uh, yeah. You can't you can't not breathe. That's very fair. That's very well. So to play devil's advocate, you could play you could breathe responsibly with a mask on. <laughs> but I, I I see the argument right. That's something that you have to do. You. That simply existing or you don't have a choice to, to breathe or not, or to, in a lot of cases, talk or not. So which one of these cases holds closer to the right of life, like the right to protect one's life and like one's health? I think it depends on how much, how great the risk is for asymptomatic spread, right? Which there's been some mixed findings on more, most recently and most likely it's highly, it's more highly likely, but I think it comes down to that, right? Because there's always a line that's drawn. And so I think this is what made what I thought of when I saw this last comment. This last one says, uh, after the you can own a gun responsibly, but you can't you can't not breathe responsibly. There's one that says, but there's always some risk that the gun ends up in say a kid's hands, etc. And there's was, always a risk if you don't if you don't wear a mask. Right. And so I think the argument with this it comes down to where you draw the line, because I was talking to someone about this a while back when one of the I don't remember which one. One of the Republican governors said that there are things that are more important than living and people freaked out. But if you look at, look at the core of what he's saying and you'll realize it's true when you realize that every policy is a way off between life and quality of life, because if it wasn't speed limits would be five miles per hour or slower everywhere because inevitably you are increasing the risk that someone gets in a car accident. And so, and that's not even constitutionally protected. The right to drive, the right to anything, right? Anything driving related, car related. And so I think when you're talking about there always being some risk, there's always some risk with every policy. And if you use that, yeah. And so if you use that argument, then you get into a real slippery slope, I think. (laughs) So So I think that, you know, there is sometimes things that are more highly valued than life when it comes to policy. I, I just think that he put his foot in his mouth when he said it, and he said yeah. it in a very dumb... Even in the way that you're explaining it, that just comes off like kind of... It, it's cold, it. right? It's like, very cold. Yeah. You know, I want you to address this this next comment. This is more mm-hmm. this is your speed. Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to address it like the next one, but I'll read them. Um, but there's always some risk that the gun ends up in, say, a kid's hands, etc. Note, specifically talking about cities, I'm a lot more chill with guns in less urban areas. And then asterisk, sorry, what is the benefit of gun ownership that is greater than life? And someone else responded, protecting your own life and your family. 
I absolutely agree with that. I think that, well, in, in addition, there's also the second part of the Second Amendment that isn't talked about as much. It, the other reason that it was enacted was to protect from a tyrannical government. And I think that regardless of who you are, I think, especially if, and I'm going to make some, some assumptions, and so I apologize in advance, but especially if you're someone that typically identifies with policies relating to gun control, you're probably less happy with what Trump is doing right now. And that's an assumption, right? But based on your political leanings, you're probably more angry at Trump. But I think those feelings that you're having right now about Trump and his use of federal troops are the exact reason that you should be more amenable to people owning guns because of those ideas of protecting yourself and your family from tyrannical government. This is the, this is the first very recent instance of discussion about whether or not government power is being used in fascistic or authoritarian ways when it comes to police and squashing protests and things like that. Now, whether or not that's true, you know, it's up for, it's up for debate, it's up for discussion. But I think that in addition to protecting your own life and your family, it's to protect your every other right you have in addition to life. And so in the form of a authoritarian or fascistic government that then tries to take those away from you. Got another con comment it says countries that don't, I like that we're getting conversation on this one. This is right. good. Countries that don't allow guns don't see a bunch of people being murdered in their homes. That's, that's true. Um, and I, I'll admit, I'll be um, transparent. I don't have the numbers, but I'll take you at your word. We even see it on the mass shooting level. Like if, if mm -hmm. you had a state sort of say, we're stopping guns due to mass shootings. Mm -hmm. We have the numbers for other countries in mass shootings, other countries that completely ban guns mm -hmm. have not seen mass shootings in upwards of like 20 years. I think Canada's one mm -hmm. of them. And so I think it, again, comes down to who's drawing the line and where do you draw the line? Because with the farther you extend freedom, the more risk that comes from it. That's where the, the quote, the, what's the big libertarian quote? It's something about, I will take dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery or something along those lines. Um, the whole com comment that we just got was off topics. Police squashing protests in Portland and elsewhere with guns and violent methods is also infringing on individual rights. However, individual ownership of guns isn't helping protect against police. Got someone's hand went up. Oh, all right. I just unmuted the person whose hand was up. I didn't realize that was a thing. Uh, I'm just going to unmute everyone. I didn't realize everyone wasn't. But yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, that's a good point, right? Right now, that is still going on. I think I would, I would more so argue that less of the Portland protesters are probably gun owners than were in other protests that were getting shut down and then drawing a lot more criticism. Like now, for example. Right, yeah, like Michigan, right? They, they brought their guns with them. Um, <laughs> and so I think I, I agree, right, that them, even if they do own guns and they're back at home, that isn't protecting them against the police. Even let's, let's assume that the, the police are overextending their, their power, they're abusing people's right to protest and right to assemble. These people own guns at home, they aren't helping them. Well, it depends on where those people's lines are. If a certain point is reached where a large percentage of the country believes that their country is becoming fascistic or authoritarian, that's where that way off comes in and where the ownership of guns helps protect or doesn't help protect, right? It leads to something that's gruesome and awful and hopefully never has to happen. But the idea is that it's there as a fallback. Now, you could make the argument that right now, if one of those protesters was unfairly pepper sprayed and then dropped the cop, he brought his gun with him and then in self-defense, he shot the cop, 
is that constitutionally protected? Yes. Would I agree with it on a constitutional right level? I mean, yeah, it's self-defense. Does that mean they're going to get off the hook? No. Absolutely not. Right, right. And so, <laughs> so the issue comes down to, but that's the thing. When you're protecting yourself against a corrupt or abusive government, the government is the one deciding whether you go to jail or not. And so, again, it leads to something very gruesome and bloody and awful. If, you, if it comes down to the point where the Second Amendment needs to be used to protect yourself from your own government, that leads down a road that doesn't end with that one use of that guns. And that's why it's... <laughs> It's something that hopefully never has to happen. No, but, but I think we you you were probably like four or five lawyers away from that happening in Chaz. It's yeah, probably. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it could have it could have been where you know, the protesters there felt they chose to landlock the area, independent of their own, given up by this by city hall, mm-hmm. that they have a right to defend their claimed land as rightful. So like you know, each county has their own uh, laws mm-hmm. and bylaws. That's why probably why that lasted so long. It could have ended up in that way. We did see a comment come in. It says, I think true libertarians should be appalled by the police involvement in these protests. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that my personal view on these protests, uh, I'll put it out there because I brought up my libertarian leanings. I think that with every instance you see it come up in the media, it looks horrendous, right? No matter who's describing it, the police brutality that's being shown. And I think there are certain cases where I absolutely am appalled by the police involvement. When it comes to targeting reporters, absolutely uh, appalled by it because there's no threat to the police in those situations. There's no reason to shoot rubber bullets at a reporter who's just recording. There's no reason to, you know, pepper spray That's them. Horrible. Yeah, it's messed up. In, in regards to stuff like the Portland protest right now, I admittedly don't think I know enough to form a true opinion because there's two sides to it where on the one side, this is legally protected in the sense that they are protecting federal property. That's the law that's being used to protect this use of federal forces. And that's why Trump's allowed to do it. So whether or not you're angry at the administration for doing it, I think it's more or less about whether whether you're angry at that underlying law and whether or not you think that federal agents, because right now it's, if that truly is what's happening, if any of these protests are happening anywhere near federal property, mm-hmm. it is now legal for them to do it. And as far as the quote unquote abductions, you don't need a warrant for an arrest on public property. I, I think if you're a lawyer and you know better, call me out on it. I don't want to pretend to be an expert, but my my understanding is that that's the case. And so when it comes to morally, uh, morally or personally how I feel, I think it's a case-by-case basis, right? And I think it's impossible to know the case-by-case basis with all of the information that's being presented on both sides. And so I would agree that there's a lot of cases where the police are going too far and those instances should be condemned. I think there are probably also instances where it's the opposite. I just don't know enough about each instance to decide. We got a couple more comments, I guess, if you want to bring them up. Uh, definitely. Um, you're definitely swimming in now. It says, uh, the first one says, I'm sorry, but I'm not angry at, at all. I'm angry at the human beings who put on the police or military uniforms and suddenly have no problem kidnapping and assaulting people who are causing literally no harm to people or property. Next comment says, this is literally what authoritarian governments have done for decades, squashing protests or dissent by the government because they were infringing on federal property. Next comment says, and the systems that are in place that are not only allow, but encourage them. That's fair. And that's, 
Well, I got, I'll, I'll step back a little bit because I've been talking a lot. So I don't know if you have any perspective know, on that. Brandon, I, you wanna... I guess I, I would have to go one comment at a time. So it says, sure. I'm angry at the human beings who put on the police officers who can, I feel like that's a different point, but I still, I still understand the same concept, that level of, I'm not sure what angle you were referring to when you said that, you know what I mean? Because in regards to people, if they're putting on this, because they're getting orders, it's not like they're choosing to police, like the police aren't policing themselves. They come from a higher order mm -hmm. and they go out and delegate whatever, I guess, mission that they want to have done. That's fair. So you're, you're saying it in order to be mad at those. No, no. I, so someone just commented, sorry, this got derailed from the original topic religion. No, I'm, I'm happy that this is sparking discussion, right? That's the point of this. Um, if people want to talk about this more than religion, then this is what we're talking about. So I think what you're saying is if you want to hold the individuals who put on the uniforms responsible, you have to encourage insubordination, right? And so, and that's fine that you can, you can hold that stance, but I guess is what you're saying to be mad at the higher ups. Right. Cause you can't, the people who put on the badge is following quote unquote policy. They're not necessarily enacting their own wishes or their own, like Trump said, arrest everybody who's, who's doing a report. That's not the people who chose to wear the badge to do that. I mean, that was a higher up call. And then that was, that was right. done. That was detailed on CNN. Right. And to, to play devil's advocate, like this comment just brought up, the last comment just brought up, shouldn't they be policing themselves? We didn't give Nazis a pass for just following orders. That's very true. When World War II was over and we had not even the higher ups, but the, the Nazis that were lower down taking orders, they were still held accountable for all of that. The reason why I can't accurately go on to this particular point is because when things of the past that we are able to see in hindsight compared to now, it's kind of like an unfair race. We're watching a complete race versus half of a race. You know I mean, we don't know how this will turn out. But, but within that interim, the close comparisons are really jarring. Granted, this is the platform that can be said. It, it does show a point that this is a level of comparison that does warrant this. Like, you know I mean? Like, you didn't mm -hmm. use a random other example. Like, it was necessary to use this example because there are parallels. Right. And I think, you know, the counter argument would be that that is the privilege of being in the future, right? That we're able to act according to history so that history doesn't repeat itself. And so I think if you see enough signs of an authoritarian or fascistic government, when do you draw the line to say this is too similar to Nazi Germany or this is too similar to Soviet Russia or this is too similar to the CCP or, you know, whatever to then say now we step in and I think it depends on how many people's lines are crossed if your issue is the government or the legal systems and institutions then it's very tricky to implement a solution to these issues through the government and through legal and federal institutions and so that's where the, the problem is and, and the paradox is if you, if you have a problem with the the way government is doing things the solution it can be through government. You can get in and, and vote the right people in. But it's not like this stuff is new. This law was already on the books. You could argue that the Trump administration is really testing our systems and testing our regulations and our, and our laws because they're doing a lot of what, right, like I said, they are legally justified in a lot of these cases. Does that make it right? Yes, or maybe, maybe not. But it shows that it's not necessarily the administration that put the fuse down. It's just, it's just the one that lit it, 
when you make that argument, when you look at that and say, well, Obama knew about these laws being on the books. Bush knew about these laws being on the book. I don't know when the law was passed. But, you know, going back, how many presidents weren't able to foresee this? You come down into the next administration and whether or not they will do something about it. That brings up the, the next comment was, can history be used as a precedent? I mean, I think it is a lot of times, right? And I think that it leads to a lot of decisions that are made, right? Even if you want to look at the Confederate flags being taken off of a lot of things and Confederate statues being taken down and people saying that that's justified, it's a lot of times they're citing the history as the reasoning. That's not necessarily precedent, right? That's not a policy or a law. But I think if you can get away with that as reasoning to take down a statue, I think you would be able to get away with that as precedent for a law. I don't know the legal answer, but I would say so. Um, I just think it depends on which aspects of history are there. How sure are you that those aspects are there? Because like I said, every news story has two sides. I'm not saying that one side is lying or not. I'm not saying that one is true and one is false, but the average citizen doesn't know that. I would say that right now we're a lot more politically informed. We're a lot more news informed because a lot of us are sitting at home and, and listening to more podcasts, watching more news, things like that. But I think it, to leave it up to the majority of Americans to decide if that history is precedent, I think the majority of Americans aren't informed enough to decide whether or not history is being repeated. But I also think that in regards to, I'm not sure if that question was presented due to the presence of the last comment in regards to the Nazis, but if we're going to use history as a precedent, we're going to have to use that application across the board. You know, in regards to are we allowing church and state to be intermingled? I mean, if we're using history as a pre, as, as a, a, pre, a precedent, which history do you want to use? Do you want to use a pandemic history where millions of people died? Or do you want to use the, the history that created the idea of no church and state? Right. Yeah, and that's true. It depends on which history you want to use. It's tricky for something like this because this is more or less not completely unprecedented, but this situation is fairly novel. So while aspects of it can tie back to different elements of history, I think that it's tricky to link it to something specific like Nazi Germany. Now, again, there are certain aspects that I would agree there are scary parallels and that I very much disagree with. The, the number one thing on my list right now is the aggression and violence against reporters. Again, it goes against the freedom of the press and in turn freedom of speech. It goes against, like, they, they aren't justified. They aren't using self-defense as a justification. They, they may be, but it's not, it's not real. They're not actually protecting themselves from the dude with the camera. And so, yeah, I would say there are certain aspects of what's going on that could be targeted. But I think it would be more effective to target individual aspects of what's happening as opposed to saying something broad and sweeping like the Trump administration is becoming authoritarian and fascistic in their handling of policing and the coronavirus, period. Because then, what? well, what do you do? What's the solution to something that broad other than impeachment? Which is fair, then, if that's what you want to bring to the table. But we already talked about how legally speaking, a lot of this is, a lot of this would check out. So I think you would have to target the individual elements of it. And then you would have a much, a much better case to, to use history as a precedent if you chose to. And if you chose not to, you could use other things like the infringement of constitutional rights, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, things of that nature. And I feel like with, with almost the two examples that we're looking at, I, I think that we kind of run into a circle because the question, can history be used as a precedent? I think the question should be morphed into, should history be used as a precedent? Mm -hmm. 
we uh, we're using America and American situations as a precedent. A lot of those was enacted by our own mistakes. Like we're we're taking lessons from initial mistakes, but we're not. But these lessons are just based off these specific mistakes we made. If we're currently making some more mistakes, we would have to make more mistakes to create more lessons for us to move forward. Mm-hmm. Like because of one Road versus Wade mistake, we have that particular lesson. But there's more aspects of those type of cases that have went to the Supreme Court where you would have to establish more and more precedent. So the mm-hmm. question is, can we think or can we enact laws that are, I guess, objective in nature and not history-based? Is that possible? Or everything kind of is based through history? Yeah, well, and not only, you know, I think should it is a good point because even on, so every Supreme Court decision on some level, well, unless it's completely novel, they're using history as a precedent, right? They're using previous cases. And on the case of can it, they they absolutely answer that. Yes, they can. Is that different on international law or international issues? I mean, I don't know, legally speaking, but again, I, I think you can. As far as should you, there were a lot of people that were angry at Roberts for his view. I really should know which issue this was, and maybe I'll Google it. The, the time where, when Roberts went with the precedent, but openly admitted that he disagreed with the precedent. And so that's where you can make the argument of, well, you're on the Supreme Court. That's your job is to determine whether these things are right or wrong. And so isn't it also your job to say whether the preceding cases were right or wrong? And if you think that was wrong, then either overturn it or vote against it now. And so should you, I think it, again, it comes down to which history are you using as a precedent and whose lines are you crossing with it?